All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Let's, uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter 2 today. And uh, the title of our message for this morning is Jesus Knows All Men. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus Knows All Men. The theme of our worship and music this morning was how amazing our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is, and how amazing His grace is. Wrap your minds around the great God of the universe, sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to the earth to do what we could not do for ourselves. He died in our place. He provided redemption for us. He took the penalty of our sin upon himself. He is amazing. When we look at who Jesus is, we'll see today that he knows all things. He knows all men. He knows all women. He knows all children. It's a profound thought. The profundity of that today is at the heart of what we want to see in these three verses that we'll look at, which serve sort of as a bridge from one passage that we looked at last week when Jesus cleared out the temple to what we will look at next week and the story of Nicodemus. Well, if you have kids or grandkids, uh, you know... (laughs) that superheroes are the big thing these days, right? So from Superman to Spider-Man, now more than ever, kids seem to be enamored with superheroes. A few weeks back, I was watching a show with our grandkids, and the announcer asked the kids, if you could pick just one superpower, which would you choose? Well, he reeled me in. So I'm sitting there with them, and I'm thinking like a little kid, which superpower would I choose? Would I choose superhuman strength or x-ray vision or the ability to fly? Or would I choose to be able to cast a web and climb tall buildings? And so just like a little kid, just like the grandkids, I'm sitting there contemplating which superpower I would choose. So as I'm quickly thinking about all this, it comes to me. I, I think the superpower that I would choose is that I would like to know all things. To not only be able to read people's minds, which I know would be scary, but to have perfect knowledge about everything. And about the time I started to think more about what it would be like to know all things, I sort of snapped out of my little kid mode, and I began to get philosophical, and I began to get biblical. Now, I'm all for fun, and I'm all for stretching kids' imaginations, but I started to wonder if there is more to this superhero thing than meets the eye. And then I started to think of all the made-up substitutes for the one true living God. Not only is there this growing list of superheroes, but, of course, there's Mother's Nature, right? There's Father Time, and, of course, there's Santa Claus, and we can go on and on. And then I, I thought about that song, that we all know, we mindlessly sing, Santa Claus is coming to town. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now get this. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. No, he doesn't, right? Only God is omniscient. And I think we let these things slip in to our lives, and if we think about it, they're almost worldly replacements for the one true and living God. God. And some of you may be thinking, oh no, Pastor Dave is a Grinch. He's turned into a Grinch. Not really. I'm I'm just trying to make the point. I just want us to think for a moment that there are a lot of substitutes for Jesus out there. 
As we come to our passage uh, for today, in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2, we find a much-needed reminder of the unparalleled power of Jesus as God. He is the ultimate superpower. Indeed, he's the only real superpower. Look at verse 23 of the end of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the feast of Passover, uh, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself, he himself knew what was in man. So in these three verses that we're going to concentrate our attention on today, we're going to find three important points of clarification as it relates to Jesus. And these three reminders are all very meaningful and important as we study the Gospel of John. And the first, the first important point of clarification, if you're taking notes this morning, is found in verse 23, and it's that Jesus performed many signs and miracles that are not recorded in Scripture. Look again at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Now, uh, we'll see here in a moment that these signs, these miracles are unnamed, so we do not know what signs or what miracles that he performed when he was at the Passover feast. That We know that's what brought him to Jerusalem, right? He was in Capernaum, verse 12, and he, he then works his way down to Jerusalem to attend this uh, major feast, the Passover feast, that commemorates what God had done in rescuing the the Jews from the grips of the Israel uh, from the Egyptians, and so he's there, and so we find this account of him clearing out the temple. We looked at that last week. Now we have this bridge, in a sense, verses twenty-three through twenty-five serve as a bridge from the account of him clearing out the temple while he's there in Jerusalem to this encounter that he has with Nicodemus. A bridge is a connector, right? It connects from one thing to another. And I told a little bit about our travel down to Florida last week. And uh, whenever we go towards Jacksonville, where our daughter Luke, uh, Allison and her husband Lucas live, there's this massive bridge. Uh, it's called the Dames Point Bridge. Some of you may have been over it. It's majestic. It's a huge two-mile-long bridge. It covers the St. Uh, John's River. But Kathy always gets a little antsy when we begin to go up this bridge because it is hundreds of feet above the water. But it's a connector. It connects from dry land on one side of the river to dry land on the other side of the river. And the reason why I say that this, this passage that we'll look at today, verses 23 through 25, serves as this, this bridge is that John wants to lay some important groundwork as to what true saving faith really is and what it isn't. That is important as we move into the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3. And so he begins here by giving us more information about the impact that Jesus had while he was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He says that many, many, Multiple people, many, believed in his name because they observed him performing various miracles which are referred to here as signs. And there are seven miracles that are highlighted in the Gospel of John. Just seven of the many miracles that Jesus performed when he was on the earth during his public ministry, his three-year public ministry. But it says here that he... Uh, performed these signs, and many believed in his name. So they observed him performing these various miracles, and they believed. Again, we're not told what the miracles are, but it's a reminder that we've not been given everything that Jesus did while he was on the earth, right? So we're in John. Just turn over to John chapter 20 real quick. John chapter 20 and verse 30. John chapter 20, 
beginning with verse 30, we find this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So we don't have record of all of the miracles that Jesus performed, just seven in the Gospel of John. But we find the purpose statement of the Gospel of John in verse 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will have eternal life. There's one way to the Father, and it's through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John writes this eyewitness account so that those who read it will know and to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by reading this, these accounts, these miracles, these signs, this, the, the, the gospel in the gospel of John, many would come to faith in Jesus. And so what we have in Scripture, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, is everything we need to know for life and godliness. And so what we have in Scripture is everything we need to know as to how to come to faith in Jesus Christ and how to live our lives for Him. In other words, the Bible is 100% perfectly sufficient. It does its job. We were given the, the full revelation of God to man, and it does its job. It's fully sufficient. Everything we need to know for life and godliness, everything we need to know to live our lives for God in a wicked world is found right here in the pages of Scripture. The Bible is sufficient. We don't need human psychology. We don't need all these other things to tell us what we need to know about life and living. We have it here in the completed revelation of God. But John makes the point that the Bible doesn't contain everything that Jesus did or everything that Jesus knows, only that which we need to know. We're on a need-to-know basis with God, and he's provided us his word. And so Jesus performed these untold miracles while he was in Jerusalem, and many people saw them, and it says here that they believed. But the big question here, if you were paying attention when we read the verses, the big question here was, is this, was their belief authentic or was it superficial? Did they believe that Jesus was the sinless Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, as, the, as uh, John the Baptist had said, or did they believe that he was something less than that? Was their belief true saving faith, or was it something different? And we find the answers to those questions in verses 24 and 25, and so this brings us to the second point of clarification, and it is this, that Jesus knows all men. And we should take great comfort in that, that our God is 100% knowledgeable about all things. He is omniscient. Jesus knows all men Look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. The word for believed in verse 23 is the same Greek word as the word entrusting in verse 24. It's pistuo. Same word. Same word for believed in verse 23 as the word that is used there as entrusting in verse 24. What John is saying here is that while many believed in Jesus, Jesus didn't believe in their belief. Why? Because he knows all men. He knows the hearts of every man. John affirms here that Jesus knows who are his and he knows who are not his. In other words, no one can pull one over on Jesus. One of my least proud moments in my life was when my mom decided that she was going to dress me up like a woman for my fifth grade Halloween party. At the time, she thought it was a brilliant idea. I mean, she went all out, makeup, 
wig, wore a dress to school. It was all in good fun, and back then you could actually do that, and people would know that it was just a costume. But she really worked on me almost to the point that when I looked in the mirror, I, I didn't recognize myself. So I'm walking into school that day for this Halloween party, and this guy accidentally bumps into me in the hallway, and he says, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. <laughs> My mom's costume looks so real that it fooled people. Well, John says here that Jesus cannot be fooled. He knows the true heart condition of every man. He knows what is in man. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks at the heart. And I am afraid that there are far too many people today that are dressed up like a Christian, but it's just a costume. As we look at the theological and ecclesiological landscape in America today, I think there are people that are in houses of worship, what we would call churches today, I think we would be astounded at how many of them don't know Christ as their Savior. How many of them are there for a show? They're there because it's a place to belong. They're there because their friends attend or for any other number of reasons that they are there huddled together with perhaps many true believers in Christ. But they're wearing a costume. It's the Christian costume. The Greek word for new, which is used here in verse 24, and then again it's used in verse 25, is gnosko. It's the purest form of knowledge. It's the perfect knowledge that Jesus had. And so this assures us that the Lord knows his own. Later in chapter 10, verse 14, it says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. It's the same Greek word there for know, gnosko, pure knowledge. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows, gnosko, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone whose name, who names the name of the Lord is to keep away from wickedness. And so these encounters with Jesus open the door wide open to a much-needed refresher as to what true saving faith really is. And this will serve us well as we move into chapter 3 next week. And so foundationally, we must understand that God's grace and the faith to believe are gifts. Jesus is on the front end of man's salvation, not on the back end. All of salvation is a gift, including faith. That's Paul's point when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gift. And it's not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I love that last part of verse 9 in Ephesians chapter 2, so that no one may boast. We have nothing whatsoever to boast about as it relates to our salvation. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's just like if you had a birthday party and somebody came and they have a big box with a bow on top and they hand it to you. It is a gift. It is a gift. You did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing but just receive it but it is purely a gift. And, and salvation is a gift from God. It's the amazing grace of God bestowed to sinful man. No one will be saved without the sovereign bestowment of the grace of God. You see, Jesus, who is the perfect Lamb of God, was given a book. And as we've seen in recent messages, that book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. The book was given by God the Father to God the Son, and in this book contains all those who will be saved from the due penalty of their sin, and those who will one day be with the Lord forever in glory. 
The Lamb's book of life contains the names of all those whom the Father sent the Son to the earth to redeem. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 3. Very familiar passage, but listen to the components of what Paul says here about Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He, meaning the Father, just as He chose us in Him, meaning the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of what? His will, right? To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He favored upon us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace. It would be really hard to read verses 3 through 7 of Ephesians chapter 1, and to think that we have anything to boast about. We're bringing nothing to the table except the sin that caused us to be alienated from God. Do we understand the components of the gospel? The gospel begins with who? With God. God is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect. And he cannot look upon sin He must punish sin because of his character. We are sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death, physical death, separation from God, death. It's doomsday for people who are sinners. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John said in in 1 John, he said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. We are sinners and we are sinners even now as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We are still sinners. Even though the penalty for our sin has been paid, we still struggle with the flesh. We still struggle with sin and we hate it. We loathe it. We are sinners. But God, through Christ, is a great Savior. And so there's one way of salvation, one way to the Father, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. The rallying cry of the great Protestant Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. Not faith plus works, not faith plus anything, only faith in Jesus Christ brings about salvation as it relates to what God has provided in Jesus. When we first moved to Pennsylvania, uh, we were confused. (laughs) Confused about a lot of things, but we were confused because we weren't used to all the winding roads that we have here. If you've been to Illinois, if you've been to where we're from, uh, everything is straight lines. North and south, east and west, and that's it. So there aren't a lot of hills. There are, not a lot of, there are hardly any mountains. Maybe in the northwest corner of the state, there are some mountains up by Galena, Illinois. But where we're from, just flat as a pancake. I mean literally flat as a pancake. We were just talking about this last night with some friends here in the church. We, it's flat. You can see for miles. Flat as a pancake. So we go from that out here to all these hills and valleys and mountains and you got to go north to go south and you got to go east to go west and you wind around this and all these kinds of things well when we got here we needed to know basically how to get to certain things right so i mean people were good natured about it but i got all these people coming up to me and they're saying well the best way to get there is to go this way but he just said the best way to get there is to go that way And then someone else says the best way, trust me, I've lived here my whole life, they said. The best way for you to get there is to go this way. 
And so we were confused. We just wanted to know one way on how to get where we were going. You see, there's only one way of salvation. There aren't many ways. It doesn't matter how um, sincere someone is about what they think is a way to God. It doesn't matter because we have the inspired revelation of God that says there is one way to the Father and it's through the Son. Amen? There's one way. It's exclusive. We live in this world today where now we have to be inclusive. No. No. There aren't many ways to God. There aren't many types of marriages. Only one man and one woman. The Bible is an exclusive book. It gives an exclusive message. It doesn't matter how sincere the Muslims are. It doesn't matter how sincere the Mormons are, the Jehovah Witnesses are. It doesn't matter. There's one way to the Father. It's through the Son. This is the gospel message that we are to share with those whom we love. But there's confusion about all this. There's confusion. So if you would, turn with me back to James chapter 2. Again, our purpose in looking at these three verses alone is we need to have an understanding about true saving faith. Because these people that witnessed these miracles from Jesus said they believed. They said they believed. We believe. John records it that way. And yet Jesus says, I don't believe in your belief. I don't believe in your belief. So we go to James chapter 2, and we pick up from Jesus' half-brother here, James, what he wants to share about faith, saving faith. Verse 14 says this, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Faith without works is dead. That's what he says. And this could be extremely confusing if we fail to compare Scripture with Scripture. James cannot be saying here that performing good works is a part of our salvation. Because that would directly conflict with so many other passages of Scripture, like Romans 3.20, which says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what was the purpose of the law, the Old Testament law, the law that God gave to Moses? What was its purpose? Well, its purpose was to show people, ultimately show people that they couldn't keep it perfectly. You see, the Old Testament law pointed to the future coming of Jesus. Well, Jesus is here. So the people in the Old Testament, they had all these laws, hundreds of laws that they were to follow. Ten big commandments, but hundreds of supplementary laws that they had to follow. But they couldn't keep it perfectly, right? They would struggle because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So they were sinners. The law exposed their sin. The law exposed that they couldn't keep it perfectly. The law pointed to Jesus who would come and to take the penalty of the sin of all who would believe in him upon himself on the cross of Calvary. The purpose of the law was to show people that they couldn't keep it. No one has ever been justified by keeping the law. Instead, Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, 
Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Justified means to be declared righteous before a holy God. So what James is saying here in James chapter 2 is there is such a thing as a dead faith. Okay, that's what he's saying. It's a lifeless faith that doesn't produce righteous living. It's a so-called belief that is purely intellectual. It hasn't affected the heart. It's a man-induced faith that is void of the Spirit of God. And that is essential for us to understand as we move into chapter 3 and the story of Nicodemus. It's the kind of faith that the demons have, verse 19. This is the belief that Jesus attributes to these men who claim to believe. They saw some miracles, and they were fascinated by them. But they had no interest in following Jesus except for the show. If the miracle stopped, they'd leave the party. Their belief was just like the belief that was described in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. They're representative of the seed that was cast onto the ground, but there were no roots. And it's the same today as what Jesus described in the parable of the sower. There are many folks who claim that they believe, but there are no fruit. There there are no roots. There's no lasting fruit. There's no endurance. There's no true heart change. I was thinking this week that I have baptized hundreds of people over the years. One of the most powerful testimonies that I have ever heard in my life came from a man that I baptized probably 20, 25 years ago. We gave him an opportunity to share, and he did. And I was blown away. Everyone that was in the auditorium that day was blown away at what this guy said. You know what he's doing today? Nothing. He has nothing whatsoever to do with the church, with Christ, with other believers. What was it? Well, I mean, it was powerful. It was powerful. I listened and I teared up as I was baptizing this guy. And I'm thinking, this is the power of God unto salvation. We celebrated with him. No roots. No roots. It was was a little flower that we saw on the roadway but there were no roots. It wasn't true saving faith. It's just like these people. They saw these miracles and they gave great testimony about it. They probably went all over the place and said, did you, did you see what he did? Did you see this miracle? It's amazing what he did. They proclaim that this, is, this event happened and they tell everybody that they talked to. They witnessed it. They were there. They saw it. They believed they believed but jesus is saying i didn't believe in your belief there's no roots you see there is such a thing as a dead faith and that's vital for us to know as we move into john chapter 3 So James is not saying that what we do by way of works is the root of our salvation. He's saying that it is the fruit of our salvation. So when there is true heart change, what we do, called here our works, what we do authenticates our faith. Faith without works is a dead faith. It's the same kind of faith 
as I said, that the demons have that James speaks of in verse 19. They know intellectually, but they do not know experientially. Jesus would say in his great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he says, you will know them by their fruit, right? In other words, those who are his produce fruit. A flower with no roots is going to die. It'll either die because the sun hits it and it'll wilt away or someone's going to step on it. There's a reason why there are a lot of little things that pop up, little weeds that pop up all the time. But if there is no root system, they're not going to last very long. And it breaks my heart to tell you the story of this guy. And I've got other stories of other people who have given testament to what God has done and where they at today they have nothing to do with jesus christ this brings us to the third point of clarification and it's this that jesus needs no help in knowing man jesus needs no help in knowing man in other words no no one can provide information about anyone that jesus doesn't already know look at verse 25 of chapter 2 and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man so he doesn't need anybody to tell him we can't convince god that this person is a christian or a believer he already knows if he's a christian or believer and he knows if he's not a christian or a believer and he knows that about us. Jesus doesn't need any help in knowing man. Jesus had no desire to embrace the false faith of those who love to watch him perform miracles. He didn't need anyone to testify concerning the heart of any man. He knows fully what is in the heart of every man. Just like he knew what was in the heart of Judas, the so-called apostle who betrayed Jesus. Remember, Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And what was the indicator to the authorities that this was the man? What did he do? Kissed him. And that's the famous Judas kiss that we hear about often, even today. Jesus knew what was in the heart of Judas. It wasn't something that he needed someone to come to him and say, well, we were going to tell you, we were going we were gonna to pull you aside earlier and tell you that you know, Judas is he's off the beaten path. Jesus knows. He knows. He doesn't need anyone to tell us what is in our hearts and the hearts of every man. And that should give us great comfort. For those of us who know Christ, as our Savior and Lord, that should give us great comfort because Jesus knows your heart. And you know what else he knows? He knows that you're going to mess up. You're going to sin. You're going to do things that you didn't want to do. You're going to get caught in doing things that, that you are ashamed of. But that should give us great comfort because he does know our heart. But for those who are pretending, those who are wearing a costume, it should cause you to sweat. Jesus addressed what that true heart change looks like when he said in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, there are a lot of folks who have no problem identifying with Jesus as long as it doesn't cost them anything. You watch 
when persecution comes, and it's coming, when persecution comes, people, you will see, churches are going to empty out. Because there are a lot of people that are wearing a costume. And as soon as it gets hot, as soon as the temperature goes up, as soon as there are, 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 are things that they have to give up to worship the one true living God, you watch these churches empty out. A lot of people have no problem identifying with Jesus. In fact, it's still, it's still popular. It's still popular among politicians to evoke the name of God, to evoke the name of Jesus. It's still popular to do that, but don't get into what Jesus said. Don't get into the specificity and the exclusivity of what Jesus said. No, we're not going to do that, but we like the Santa Claus Jesus. They love to embrace Jesus as Savior as long as that he doesn't ask them to embrace him as Lord. Curios, Master. You know, the Apostle Paul was explicitly clear in Romans 10, 9 when he said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Embracing the lordship of Christ is essential to salvation, not just fire insurance, a get-out-of-hell-free card for those who assent to something about Jesus. We must confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. You know, Jesus talked about the, the costume wearers the pretenders, at the end of his great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And, and did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not perform many miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You know what that word knew is? Gnosko. Perfect knowledge. I never knew you. I never knew you as one of my own. Your name was not in the book. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, Jesus is both Savior and Lord, right? He's Savior and Lord. He saves us from the due penalty of our sin, but he is Lord of all. He is master of all. And the true believer in Jesus Christ recognizes that he is their master. And they, they seek to please him all the days of their life. Will they do it perfectly? No. But that's, that's what they want to do. That's the tenor of their life. That's how you tell the difference between a pretender and a true believer in Christ. The guys that love the miracles, if the heat got turned up, they, up, they would turn and run Jesus didn't believe in their belief. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. It's amazing. When we think of the amazing grace of God, you know, it's a song. It's what we sing. It's what we say. I don't know of any better word to use than amazing as it relates to the grace of God. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. That's at the heart of the meaning of the word grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. If we could, we'd take credit for it, wouldn't we? We would boast about it. That's why Paul said, so that no one will boast. No one will boast. We transition this morning 
to a celebration of the grace of God. So we transition to what we refer to as communion or, or the Lord's Supper. If you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. Now you've got to know that the context here is not good. It's not good. Paul is rebuking the church at Corinth who had adulterated just about everything, including the Lord's Supper. They turned it into a big drunk fest, a big party. They had adulterated the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper. And so Paul corrects them all throughout this letter that he writes, the first letter. The second one's better. The second one's better. They, some of them learned and they grew. But he's rebuking them here. So this is in the context of a giant rebuke from the Apostle Paul. And he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said that this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we understand that this is a memorial service. And I've been a part of many memorial services over the years where a person who has passed away is memorialized. We talk well of them and so on. Uh, It's a reflection of their life. This is a reflection of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So the bread represents his body. It's not his body. It's not his real body. It just represents his body. The cup, the juice that we drink, represents his blood. It's not his blood. It's not his real blood. It just represents his blood. So the picture is we are remembering what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary in our place. So that's what we are going to do today is we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup and we're going to remember what Christ has done for us. So let's build a little bit more context around that. Remember we talked about the book, right? John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? That's how he announced when he saw Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How did he do it? Why was he the perfect lamb? He lived a perfect life to qualify himself to go to the cross of Calvary and to die in the place of sinners like us, all those who will place their faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord. And we celebrate that. In our church, we celebrate it every month. The first Sunday of every month, we come together and we partake of the elements. We partake of the bread first, because that's what it says in the text. And then we partake of the cup. And we remember this glorious, amazing gift of salvation. That before the foundation of the world, God gave the Son this book. And he's put our names in the book. He's given us the salvation that we do not deserve. It's personal. Now, the interesting thing is he's talking to a local church here, right? So he's talking to a local church, but he's making it personal to the people in the church. So we're gathered here together. This is an ordinance of the church. There are two main ordinances of the church. There's water baptism and there's the Lord's Supper. Okay? Both are representative Neither are salvific. And so we have this ordinance. It's a church ordinance. That's why we do it together in a setting like this. But it's personal. So we have personal little cups in front of you, in the, in the chair in front of you, if you would like to grab that. 
Uh, we've gotten really good at opening these, right, over the last year or so. So uh, you have to open the first top layer to get out the wafer, and then the second layer is for the, for the cup or the, 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 the grape juice there. But I want to encourage you, as you partake of the and do it in your own timing. We're going to play a song that is reflective of Christ, and so we're going to play that during this, this time. But let me finish out the last part of this passage. It says, Therefore, who, whoever eats of the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must first examine himself. So this is the time that we use to examine ourselves. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And that's a, that is a statement concerning death. Many of people who mistook the Lord's Supper and just blew it off and took it, suffered great harm. The Lord takes this seriously. And so we're told to do this until He comes again. Until Jesus comes again. And so this is a special time for us as believers in Jesus Christ to partake of these representative elements and remember what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray. We're going to play a song. I want you to be reflective. Examine your hearts. Hey, if there's things in your life that are just out of whack, I mean, this is the time to talk to the Lord. It's just you and the Lord. Let me pray. Our Father, we come before You even now as the church, as those called out ones, the ecclesia, those whom You have redeemed by the power of Your blood, gave Your body and blood on the cross of Calvary. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so You have provided what we could not provide for ourselves. And as we've even examined true saving faith today, Lord, we're we're reminded that you did all the work. You did it all for us. And so we thank you for that. May we think about our lives today. Think about how much you mean to us today. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the salvation that you provided. And we thank you as a congregation today and praise you today in the name of Jesus Christ the righteous, the sinless, perfect Son of God, the unblemished Lamb of God who you sent to take away the sins of the world. Amen.